The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Hello, gentle listeners. This is a cold open addition to the QB Sco Show. Me and Mark Schofield, say hello, Mark. Hello, Mark. Me and Mark have already recorded our Wentz performance review against the Dolphins. We talked about some Fitzpatrick. We talked about some Brady and some other things going around the league. But what we also did is we talked a lot about Daniel Jones, the quarterback for the New York Giants, the presumed starter, at least that's what we thought coming into this game with the Philadelphia Eagles. So every week we break down the enemy quarterback and whatnot. You can find that in the second part of the show. First part of the show is still relevant and fresh. But the reason that we had to come back and re-record a new segment to throw in on the front end of this is because there is a tweet by Pat Leonard. And this tweet says, quote, Pat Shermer's exact wording, in fact, was that Eli Manning is, quote unquote, very likely to start Monday night in Philly. So Eli, 116 wins, 116 losses all time, is essentially back. It's happening, unquote. So with that news, obviously the the Daniel Jones injury, I believe it's an ankle, right, Mark? It is an ankle injury. So it's an ankle injury for Daniel Jones that could very possibly keep him out of the Monday night game with the Philadelphia Eagles. So what we have to do here is we have to slap this on the front end of the show because podcasting is stupid. And anytime you record, some news is going to drop to make us look stupid. But thankfully, at least this tweet dropped before I got to even editing the show. It was literally right after we were done recording that this tweet dropped. So Mark, considering everything that we talk about with the Giants offense later on in the show, what changes for them do you think anyway with Eli Manning entering the lineup? What does this say about well, how this game could be different for the Eagles defense entering this one? Well, in the second half of the show, Michael, we spend a lot of time highlighting the fact that Daniel Jones sometimes holds on to the ball too long. The, the time from snap to throw is among the highest in the league, that he's a rookie quarterback who has had issues with ball security, with taking sacks that he shouldn't take, with putting the ball on the turf because he's been too careless with the football. And we highlighted at great length and in tremendous detail just how that almost plays to the strengths of this defense under Jim Schwartz because we all know they struggle in the secondary. We saw that last week, but they have strengths up front and they are able to get pressure on opposing passers. And when you're going up against a rookie quarterback like Daniel Jones, who has a tendency to hold on to the football and put it on the turf at times, that's a match you laugh to favor if you're an Eagles fan. Now... (laughs) 
you could probably just take that 15-minute discussion and throw it in the virtual trash bin because everything does change with Eli Manning because he won't hold on to the football like Jones does. He will get the ball out quicker, unlike Jones at times. He will be more comfortable sort of taking a check down or throwing it away and not fighting until the whistle like sometimes Daniel Jones tries to do. It changes that calculus. And so thinking about this game and thinking about how with Daniel Jones under center, it might play to the strengths of what the Eagles do. Now that is a bit nullified. And while, yes, Eli Manning has his flaws as a passer and will miss throws and will make some strange decisions at times, his ability to get the ball out quicker than Jones gives this Giants offense a chance to be a bit more productive in the passing game. This year was supposed to be about progress and development for Daniel Jones, but with Madden back in the lineup, this game becomes a little bit more interesting in terms of what we might see and how exciting this game might be into the fourth quarter, which is probably something the bulk of the listeners don't want to hear right now. I, I It's interesting because with Manning, often what we've seen from him in the late stages of his career is, you know, we often hear the term touchdown to check down. That's yep. how quarterback reads things. Eli Manning is more check down to check down. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so is there a check down available? No. Well, I'll create one. Like I and we get to this in detail in the second part of the show, which again you can still listen to because Mike and I have fun doing it. Don't just listen to the cold open here. You're gonna miss out on the historical reference too, because I didn't prepare a second one for this one. Last year when I covered the the Giants for Big Blue View, and I do it again this year. So many of my pieces were, why is he checking the ball down too much? There are op- there were opportunities last year when he was their starter all throughout the season in the downfield passing game. Obviously, with Odell, that was a factor. But Sherman was scheming stuff up for him to hit on downfield throws. But he was much more comfortable checking the ball down. And so he's going to get the ball out of his hands. The question becomes now, can you rally to the football and tackle? It's a different game with Eli Manning. Mm. The other thing to mention, though, you lose the athleticism of quarterback. I don't think the Giants have done enough in using Jones as an athlete and sort of the zone read game and getting him outside of the pocket and letting him even have some designed runs, run T formation, 18 power like he's a Pop Warner quarterback or Mitchell Trubisky. You can do some things like that with Daniel Jones that they haven't done. That is out the window now with Eli Manning. His legs aren't going to threaten you. His legs aren't going to scare you. And so that part is lost. So that might be one less than you have to defend for if you're the Eagles, one lesson you have to prepare for if you're Jim Schwartz. And a big thing for me, too, is the fact that, you know, you're going, it's a different type of game. It's going to be a quicker type passing game. You know, the yards per attempt this year, just on two games to 6.2, it's been pretty low for, for Manning recently. And a lot of that is because of the checkdowns. A lot of those checkdowns are going to go to Saquon Barkley. So I think the new danger here, not only tackling guys like, you know, Evan Ingram, Sterling Shepard, Derry Slayton, so on and so forth, but Saquon Barkley being involved as, as such a big checkdown threat. And the Eagles are one of the worst tackling teams in the league. So I think stopping this Giants offense becomes less about stopping the downfield passing attack of the Miami Dolphins, for example, because Eli Manning is not going to take the same no. shots as Ryan Fitzpatrick. It's going to be more about tackling after the catch. That has to be sound. That's been an area where the Eagles have struggled. So we replace one problem with another problem, but ultimately it's less threatening overall, right. I would think. Yeah, I'm I mean, I, I think it is less threatening because, you know, the danger with Jones and a lot of the downfield shot plays and Darius Slate, and we talked about his speed. Again, guys, the second half of the show was really good. <laughs> That's, again, it's not going to be as big of an issue because Manning doesn't have the same chemistry with Slayton as Jones does with him. And so that's gone. But you're, so you're going to see an offense that's going to be more reliant on 10, 12 play drives than six, seven 
four, three play drives. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so that changes things. It gives Eli Manning more opportunities to potentially screw things up from his point of view, which can happen. It's just a different game. I think we covered it. Gentle listeners. Uh, well, we, wait. We- I'm seeing a tweet now that Alex Tanny might actually get the start. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I just wanted to see your reaction. <laughs> Is that the the trick shot artist on YouTube? I think he's the trick shot guy. If I'm the not dude mistaken. perfect guy. Yeah, My yeah, kid yeah. watches that all the time. So that's going to do it for this cold open uh, addendum, essentially uh, this addition to the QB Sco Show episode 43. Listen in to the rest of the show because you're going to get a great Carson Wentz performance review. We're going to talk about Daniel Jones, who the Eagles will probably see later in the year anyway. And there's some stuff about the, the Giants offense in there as well. So we're going to kick it over to the actual show that we recorded earlier right now. Welcome into the QB Sco Show. This is episode 43, brought to you by the fine folk at SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. I'm your host, Michael Kist. Follow me on Twitter at Michael Kist NFL. That's K-I-S-T. As always, here to break down enemy quarterbacks and give a Carson Wentz performance review. He is quarterback number one in our hearts, in our minds, on our timelines. He is Mark Schofield. Follow him on Twitter at Mark Schofield. Mark, brother, how you doing? Mr. Kist, the blood pressure is a bit high today. Because <laughs> we had some issues. Yeah, we had we had some Skype issues. We had some recorded issues trying to get this one done. It, it's it's an absolute adventure every time Mike and I sit down to do a podcast. It, it because <laughs> for whatever reason the little hamsters in the wheel that are running to keep Skype going, they're struggling right now. They're not getting yeah. enough water. They're not getting enough water from that little you know water bottle handed in the cage. And so we had some issues. I had to spike my office chair a couple of times. I guess that's what did the trick. So we are actually back. And it is, as always, good to be with Mr. Kist. And it's historical reference time. And Seen as upon, we are upon the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, which is this weekend, December 7th. It's good oh, wow. for a, a Pearl Harbor reference. And I, yeah. I, I could go down the road and talk about the importance of Schofield Barracks, the Army installation out there in Hawaii, but I won't. Although I could, but I won't. I'm going to talk about some of the failures that led up to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor because the United States military basically knew it was coming. They had intercepts. And unfortunately, those were not relayed to Admiral Kimmel and General Short, who were the Admiral and General in charge of protecting U.S. forces out at Pearl Harbor. And part of the reason was because people in Washington were afraid to give them that. I'm reading from Michael Bechelos' book, Presidents of War. The General, this General Short, was not privy to the valuable intelligence that flowed from U.S. intercepts through the highly secret operation called MAGIC of coded Japanese cable traffic called Purple, which included messages between the foreign ministry in Tokyo and the consulate in Honolulu. This source offered clues that the Japanese were planning a spectacular surprise attack against U.S. forces in Hawaii. The highest officials in Washington feared that sharing this intelligence with local commanders might jeopardize MAGIC, their code-breaking program, by tipping off Tokyo that the United States had broken its code, after which it would be changed. They had the information but they didn't share it with people. Now, Michael, Mm. that makes me think, what information could have been shared with us to give us insight that our two teams, the Eagles and the Patriots, would just choke like dogs this weekend? The film doesn't lie. The film does not lie. Throughout the past three, four weeks, when everyone was talking about the Eagles' revamped defense and their turnaround and I stayed skeptical the entire time. I understand why people would be annoyed with that negativity for something that, you know, on paper was objectively good. However, again, I saw issues. The issues were still there. 
and the issues propped up in a major way against the Miami Dolphins and Ryan Fitzpatrick. It was something that you could see coming. Yeah. Ryan Fitzpatrick, the, the week two last year, we yep. talked about it on the Kiss we and Select film review show. I mean, his time to throw was basically identical. He was under pressure the same a high amount. It didn't matter because, again, the time to throw was basically identical. He got it out quick. And Ben brought up a great point about Fitzpatrick and time to throw it and the way it looks as far as like, oh, this is quick game. Well, not really because you can float one up within 2.2 seconds and throw it 30 yards down the field. Right. And if your guys can't cover, well, that's not quick game. You're, you're getting beat deep. And Fitzpatrick sees one-on-one. He loves one-on-one. Nice light up, baby. And he just goes unconscious and throws it up, and the Eagles can't make a play. So there was plenty of evidence out there, and I even warned Ben before the game because he put up a tweet out there about the quarterbacks that the Eagles were about to face. I was like, don't you dare slander Fitzmagic, especially after what we saw from last year. And boy, was it bad. And to go along with your historical reference, recently to cope with the Eagles' loss to the Dolphins, I picked up, uh, for these gentle listeners that are not seeing this, but the video shows that I'm holding up a book of Carthage Must Be Destroyed by Richard Miles. And that's kind of how I'm feeling about the Eagles right now. What did you see from the from the Patriots that that made you think that they were going to take a, a big L to the Houston Texans last week? Well, part of it was their troubles in defending a mobile athletic quarterback that we've seen from them in the past, whether it was Lamar Jackson, Deshaun Watson in years past, guys like Patrick Mahomes, Andrew mm-hmm. Luck. They've always struggled defending mobile quarterbacks. So that was sort of issue number one. Issue number two was when you look at both the way Bill O'Brien has molded his offense with a couple of different things that they do schematically, they will spread you out, go empty, put Watson in the gun and give him some stack slot looks where he can make easy throws to Hopkins and Fuller. That was one thing. And then mm. they're sort of condensed look. They usually did it with a tight two by two, but they also use that on Sunday night, that diamond pistol formation yeah. that obviously Baltimore used and gave New England fits a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago. They used that. They got a touchdown throw in the red zone, in the red area. So, you know, there was evidence that they were going to struggle. And you know, not to turn this into a Patriots show, although I'm, I'm yeah. glad as a dirty, filthy Patriots fan to do that. We got to start talking about playoff teams here eventually. You know, but uh, but to, you know, highlight something here, when you sort of look at the New England Patriots and what they've done over the past three weeks, this was going to be their tough stretch, right? And they come yeah. out of the bye, they get Philly on the road, they get Dallas at home, then they go to Houston, then they get Kansas City coming to town. This was going to be their tough stretch that told us about this team. I assumed that they would go at best three at one and Houston would be the game they'd lose because I thought the Watson matchup and everything was going to be a tough one for them. So in, in a sense, I wasn't really surprised. They just seemed unprepared, outcoached, out-schemed, outplayed. And when I saw before halftime, they had punted the ball. There were like 10 seconds left. They had pinned Houston deep. Houston was going to take a knee. They were in victory formation. They had to burn a timeout because they didn't have enough defenders on the field. Mm. That's something you never see from yeah. a Bill Belichick coach team. When I saw that, I literally pulled a Greg Easterbrook and wrote down in my notes, they're going to lose this game. They're not prepared. And, and it, it's interesting because the whole conversation, the 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 OK Boomer treatment of Tom Brady, right. nearly the same night came back to bite him because they nearly came back in that game. They nearly, uh, what, I want to say a half a finger away from getting the onside's kick and really making it if interesting. If they recover that onside, <laughs> does anybody doubt they're going to find a way to win that game? Not, no chance in hell. We've seen it too many times. Yeah. I mean, and <laughs> I will say to his credit, 
Rob Parker from Fox Sports said a couple years ago, if Tom Brady comes back and wins a Super Bowl, I will go to Antarctica. He is in <laughs> Antarctica right now. So I will give him credit for being a man of his word. But look, I said this on another show this week. People have worn down the shovels, the, the hand placement spots on their shovels from covering up Tom Brady's grave every single year, dating yeah. back to like 2010. And he still manages. He's like Jason. He will still manage to be there at the end of this story. I don't know how he's going to get there. Their offense is bad right now, but he's going to manage to get there somehow. It's going to be interesting when Tom Brady goes and wins uh, another one and Nick Wright is going to like – so next on, on this installment of the Sco Show here in Pat's Pulpit, we're going to talk a little <laughs> bit more about the Patriots' defense. The overarching theme there is, man, yeah, a couple unexpected uh, losses. Yeah. And let's kind of dial back into the Eagles' loss. Uh, obviously, we already talked about Ryan Fitzpatrick. You know, you mentioned the Patriots' weakness was a mobile quarterback in certain looks. Uh, the Eagles' weakness is a quarterback that just doesn't give an F, yeah. period. And we'll just throw it up. Dealt with that. Let's talk about Carson Wentz because – Obviously, the, this loss majorly is on the defense. We understand that. Absolutely. Uh, Carson Wentz is low on the list of problems with the outcome of this game. That said, there was still some, th- there were still some throws missed. There was a read missed that, that Baldy, you know, broke down in detail and whatnot. We talked about that on the Kiss and Solak show and there were butterfly effects everywhere and points left on the board for various reasons, whether it be drops or missed field goals and whatnot. But overall, after the the previous two weeks of Carson Wentz really just looking mentally shot, dealing with a hodgepodge wide receiver group that wasn't consistent for him. Alshon Jeffrey comes back, has a big game. You know, Dallas Goddard steps up a bit. You get a little bit more consistent receiving production from Nelson Aguilar, who looked competent for the first time in a while. So there were some encouraging signs overall from the offense. I felt that they were pretty efficient through the air. They went pass heavy, which I'm, I'm fine with. They were more efficient through the air anyway. But from Wentz, I, I got to say, this is just an encouraging sign to see him to be able to bounce back, even if it is uh, in a in a bad, terrible, embarrassing loss. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. And we said going into this game that this was a chance for a get right game for Carson Wentz. And I think we saw that. I, you know, watching the film of this game, came away extremely impressed with what I saw from him. And not with like some of the big throws downfield or the anticipation throws, which were littered throughout this game to Alshon Jeffrey and others. I think one of my favorite plays was just a, a small five-yard completion to Greg Ward late in the first quarter. Because uh, in talking to you and other Eagles fans and being on other Eagles shows, I know that many Philadelphia Eagles fans are clamoring for improvement in the subtle art of moving in the pocket from Carson Wentz, rather than relying on the big athletic splash type plays, just that subtle little art of creating space. And if you watch second and eight, 119 mark, it's this little route that he throws across and route to Greg Ward. Yeah. And what's impressive about this play is that old school Wentz does what he wants to do here. You see him feel the pressure to his right, and he really wants to bounce this to the outside. And he starts to do that. But then he stops and you see this awkward looking plant of the right leg. It's because he's getting this pressure out to the outside and it stays to the outside. And he comes to the realization that he's not going to beat this to the edge. 
He's not going to do what he usually does, which is spin away from pressure or roll to the right. He stops, plants that right leg awkwardly, and then climbs back and up into the pocket and releases this throw in a little check down. It's just this little play. But when I saw that, I, I wrote down, this is the pocket movement Eagles fans have been waiting for. Because it's that subtle little art of feeling pressure and reacting to it that we see from Wentz here that I thought was a huge sign and a huge contrast to what we've seen from him in previous weeks and seasons. And you look at this play, and, and one thing that stood out to me on a, on a few throws, including the second down drop from Zach Ertz in the third quarter, but wa- watch Wentz as he resets he fully flips his hips here and then just fires and and this is this is beautiful from him this, this takes athleticism like this this is this is a type of athleticism to be able to flip your hips and be able to uncork that and and put good placement on it so i i, I agree yeah. and you know from a from a reading the full field perspective as he's dropping not only is he seeing the rush but he checks left there's nothing there and then he's able to flip and throw it to ward yeah. like it's a it's a really nice throw yeah and the other thing to mention about this is when he finally flips those hips and throws it he's now got somebody driven back into his lap Mm-hmm. Try to see who it is. It's Kelsey who gets – no, it's no, no. Brooks. It's, it's Brooks who gets yeah. driven back into his lap. And so he can't release this over the top because if he does, it's going to go over Ward's head. So he has to drop the arm angle to the side as well. And the release point here, when you combine it with everything else, it's just textbook from the quarterback here. And there are other examples of him dropping the arm angle. There's a throw first and 10. It's the first play of the third quarter, 14-59, where play action roll to the left, and he has to drop the arm angle again when he's rolling to the left. If you had seen a Mahomes do that or some of the other quarterbacks in this league, you'd be seeing it all over your timeline. But for whatever reason, it doesn't get the kind of hype and love that it probably should because this is a quarterback rolling to his offhand, having to drop the arm angle to make a throw like that on the move. I thought that was an extremely impressive throw. And – you know, you just – I do have some questions about how they handled the field goal drive at the end, which we can talk about if you want. Um, but I thought this was a really good game from him. I'd, in terms of the reasons they lost this game, I, I would be hard-pressed to find Carson Wentz's name anywhere near the top 20. Yeah, let, let's talk about that last drive there. Are you talking about – because there was the throw to Ertz on first and 10 at 239 in the fourth quarter – where he's got Ertz on a corner, he puts one right on him. Eric Rowe is able to, he doesn't touch it at first, but he's able to rip it out at the end. And then after that, and and a lot of people put this on Wentz and thought he should have thrown it away, including myself when we talked about it in the film review show, but they have him on a, on a sprint out right. There's nothing there. I yeah. I, I'm wondering if like when he looks back, he's trying to find maybe Aguilar coming across the field on the backside. But like then he's surprised by a free rusher and then doesn't have, you know, like the time to throw it away. He tries to escape ball security. You know, the ball comes out. He's got both hands on the ball. It just happens to come out. He lands on it. This is one I thought he could have dirted, uh, especially consider- like if it's third and 10. OK, I get trying to look back towards towards Aguilar when your primary reads are locked up like that. I don't know if it's the best decision to be rolling that way and then try to decide to come backside when there's some pressure coming. What about you? Yeah, I mean, part of me, I just didn't like the play call. Same. Because you know, I think in this situation, 
when you design a rollout, a sprint out like this, and you need a play, it's third and t- it's second and ten. You cut the field in half. Yeah, and I just don't like doing that in this situation. I used to love these design rollouts and sprint outs in the end zone. Look, I'm a kid. I grew up idolizing Montana. You know the catch and all that stuff, sprint right option. I used to love that. But now when you see it, especially when they're just in the soft cover two with the safeties on the heels on the goal line, like it's going to be hard to get a big play here. And if he had more time, I do think he is, like you said, looking back for Aguilar, but it's just not there. I do think he needs to dirt it. I also question what happened on third down, okay? Mm. Because when you look at third down, it's third and 10, and they snapped this before the two-minute warning. So the clock is going to stop no matter what, right? Mm -hmm. You don't need to worry about throwing it out of bounds or throwing it into the end zone so you stop the clock. This clock is going to stop. When you see Miami line up pre-snap, They've got their corners at the five, one safety at the goal line, and then three safeties in the end zone. You're running four verts. Yeah. The clock is going to stop. Just throw somebody the seam immediately. Mm -hmm. Okay? I understand, look, you need two scores and you might kick the field goal anyway. Maybe somebody makes somebody miss. Maybe you get it down to a first and goal type situation. Worst case scenario, the clock stops. You kick the field goal like you were going to anyway. Like I thought that was a poor bit of situational awareness from Wentz because if you watch this play, the two inside receivers are looking for the ball at the 15. Yeah. And if you throw it to one of them, they've got a chance to at least pick up the first down. And now you've got a chance to get the touchdown and it changes the end of game calculus. And so I thought that might be a situation where you could just take what they give you. Don't try to force something late into the end zone when you've got three safeties just squatted in the end zone when the ball is snapped. They also have Sanders staying into block. It's a three-man rush. He's somebody that you can leak out on a simple angle route, dump it off to him at the 15-yard line, and let him run and see what he picks up. And then maybe you're in a position, he makes a guy or two miss, you're in a position where you're, what, maybe on the on the five-yard line, maybe on the eight-yard line, you're dealing with a a, a fourth and short to fourth and medium. You have options. Right. Yeah. You have options to go for it if you want and go for the touchdown right there. When I looked at it, there were issues, again, with receivers not necessarily coming open. This is reflected in next-gen stats. He was third on the week in aggressiveness at 26.1%, meaning that a ton of his throws, a large sample of them were into tight windows. I thought he made a lot of those throws, had better placement that we've that we've seen from him in previous weeks for sure. I thought he was more consistent despite a couple of missed throws. I mean, you throw 50 times, right. you're going to have some examples. But overall, it, you look at it and you say, okay, this isn't a Wentz problem, but I am concerned that the Eagles don't seem to be scheming anything special up. They had to kind of rely on coverage bus and then soft coverage at the end from the Dolphins before they could really get anything wide open for them. And then the receivers themselves not being able to create separation. This is something that's going to have to be addressed in the offseason, most likely. But just overall, I don't feel like this is an offense that's, that's threatening anyone. No, I mean, it's not. And again, as a dirty, filthy Patriots fan, I know what it looks like to see an offense that just can't threaten anybody right now. And, you know, you're seeing sort of similar issues with the Eagles offense. Like, you know, they try to scheme some guys open, but it's tough to do it when you're playing with a mismatch of receivers. You know, even against some soft coverage looks like there was a throw once through a comeback route, a five route along the right sideline to Alshon Jeffrey, and he double clutches it. And he's still sort of not trusted what he's seeing at times. And so it is still a work in progress. Now, thankfully for the Eagles, look, you're still in the thin in the NFC East, number one. <laughs> somehow. Somehow, I know. <laughs> the schedule is somewhat favorable. You get the Giants on Monday night. That's probably a winnable game, although in the wake of last week, we probably shouldn't chalk that up as a win just yet. Right. You know, And then you get Washington, who is obviously a mess. And then obviously the big one in a couple of weeks with Dallas coming to town. 
Yeah. I mean, everything's still there for the taken, strangely enough. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to talk about that matchup with the Giants. We'll get into the evaluation of their quarterback, Daniel Jones, up next here on the QBSCO show. And we are back here on the QB Sco Show, episode 43, SB Nation, Bleeding Green Nation, Michael Kist, here with QB1 in our hearts and minds, Mark Schofield. Mark, as you take a look at the New York Giants rookie quarterback, number one, I, I, I want to put it out there because we're probably going to be a little bit harsh on Daniel Jones. Rookie seasons, for me, don't mean a whole lot. They're establishing a baseline. You're figuring out, you know, what went wrong, what we can fix, so on and so forth. Season two, season three, you start to get a much stronger signal of what a quarterback is going to be. That said, the Eagles are not playing year two, year three Daniel Jones right now. They're playing rookie Daniel Jones. And rookie Daniel Jones is having some issues. Number one with ball security, where he's got 15 fumbles on the year, which is just, it's it's awful, and he might actually end up setting a record. I think he leads the league in fumbles this year. Uh, also, there's the fact that he's not able to stress defenses down the field. He's one of the lower quarterbacks. I think he's around 10% in deep ball frequency, and even when he does uncork it deep, it's not necessarily accurate. It was something that I saw in the Senior Bowl and Mobile Live when people thought, you know, people were saying, oh, this is tall, big quarterback and whatnot. He's got to have a big arm. He doesn't. Like, he, he just, he really doesn't. Um, this is a guy that thrives, and this is the case in college too. And often when you hear the term like one read quarterback, it's typically false or kind of overblown. Daniel Jones in college, and the, the analytics reflect this, was a one read quarterback. He's best when working in the rhythm of an offense. And when I watch this Giants offense, uh, the, I think part of the issue that I have is they're so extremely predictable. I think their run game is extremely divorced from their passing game. Uh, they have some serious tells as to what they want to do. And I think that's a hindrance to Jones himself. So it's not all on him. But overall, when you look at Jones and who he is right now, where do his strengths lie? I mean, his strengths sort of lie where they always lie, which was that short to intermediate passing game. It's why he was best suited for a West Coast style of offense. You mentioned the you know zero to one step drops and the one read throws. 71% of his came on zero to one step drops when he was in his last season at Duke. That was one of the highest numbers in college, if not the highest. And the highest number in the NFL last season was 50% by Nick Foles. And yep. so it was off the charts. And that's what he was doing, which is why, and I know we talked about this, the senior bowl was so confounding for him because he was playing for John Gruden, Mr. West Coast offense himself. <laughs> and he looked bad that yeah. week. He had a good game. But that doesn't count because everybody is out of town, as you and I both know, by Thursday night, Friday morning. It doesn't matter. The game doesn't matter. Yeah. A quick note on that. It's funny because Mark's right. What you see on TV, like a lot of people are at work during the week and they miss the practices on NFL Network and whatnot. And even then, the coverage tends to like skew reality a bit as far as to what these players are looking like when you're there watching it live. Scouts don't watch the game, man. They don't. They don't care about the game. They care about the practices. They care about working with these guys and whatnot in person. The practices are what matter. And you're right. I don't know what Dave Gettleman was saying when he was saying, oh, a few days of practice at the Senior Bowl. We were sold on this guy. I thought he was bad. The Wednesday practice that was rained out, we didn't get to see it live, so we had to watch it on film. And when yep. they did the skeleton session with Jones, his first three throws were quick out to the left that he airmailed by like 10 yards, <laughs> yeah. quick out to the left that he threw a pick six on, yep. and then a quick comeback route to the left that he stared at, that he stared at, that he stared at, that he double clutched, that he made a sandwich, and then he threw an interception. Yeah. I mean, I, that was... The proverbial put the pen down moment. I was sitting right next to Joe Ferriola, our good buddy. Uh, I was watching it with him, and I literally turned to Joey. I'm like, 
I can't believe what I'm seeing. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? This is a guy tailor-made for a West Coast offense. He's running a West Coast offense here. He's throwing West Coast concepts here, and he can't do it. Mm. Now, look, to be fair, to be fair, he's been better than expected. Yeah, he has. Like, we can give him that. Because you remember when we did the this, app, this, this show after the draft <laughs> – we had a raw edit of you and I just cackling for like 10 minutes about yeah. David Gettleman. Yeah. He's been better than we thought he was going to be. But the bar was so low, mm-hmm. like crater, you know, trench, marina trench kind of low bar here for Daniel Jones. So the fact that he's been at times a serviceable quarterback, it's good for him, but it's probably not good enough right now. Mm. It, it, I should mention, I cover the Giants and Daniel Jones for Big Blue View. You know, so I see him every single week. He's my new Mitchell Trubisky. Try being me for a week, kids, okay? I get to watch Mitchell Trubisky and Daniel Jones every single week in and out, okay? Do we get hazard pay at SB Nation, Mike? I'm just wondering. (laughs) I'm just throwing it out there, okay? John, Eddie, no? Okay. (laughs) So, all right. He's gotten better. The ball security is a massive issue, and a lot of it is on him from a technique standpoint because you will see at times when – you know, he had a stack fumble against the, the Cardinals back in week seven, I believe, where he's waiting for Sha- Saquon Barkley to come open on a running back screen route. Barkley's slow playing it a bit too much. And he's like patting the ball and patting the ball and patting the ball. And you see Chandler Jones, you know, coming at him like, you know, a shark that sees a little baby fish swimming in the water. You know what's going to happen. You know how that story ends. And he strips him of the football. Yeah. He got, he showed a little bit better progress than that this week. He had a couple of moves in the pocket where he's got both hands glued to the football. I know they're stressing ball security with him. The interior, the internal clock is a mess with him right now. He got sacked, I think, seven or eight times in that Cardinals game. And I think three or four of them were directly on him because he's just – the ball's supposed to be out. And if you're blocking a three-step concept as a left tackle and you're blocking four seconds into the play and the ball's not out, well, it's not really on you at that point, is it? Yeah. You know, So, you know – there are some issues with him from a clock perspective, the internal clock, from a ball security perspective, and even some of his better throws. Like one of his great deep throws this week, uh, I think it was sort of late in the game where you know he hit Caden Smith. I think it was a third and 12 at the 846 mark of the third quarter. He misses a wide open out route on the left side of the formation. Like, no, this was one of the double posts. He threw it to the number two guy. Mm. And it was a nice throw and it looks great on film. But if you watch that, the tight end is wide open on the left side of the field. Like nobody, nobody is covering him. And if he throws a simple out route, it's probably a bigger play. And so there's a lot they need to fix. The offense is, like you said, very simplified. He threw an interception on a sticks concept, three curl routes on third and 10. And they saw a cover two man under look, defenders and trail coverage. So you get defenders playing between the receiver and the ball, safety help over the top. They're trying to force you to float it over to your target. He doesn't. He tries to throw it through the defensive back underneath, and we all know how that ends too. So it's a work in progress. He's been better than we thought, but still not good enough yet. But like you said, it's his rookie year, so we can give him some slack. And there were still some impressive things that I saw from his film. I mean, you can go back to week 10 against the Jets. I, I, th- I think it was against the Jets where they had that that shot yeah. concept that we talk about all the time. We've got the corner route from trips on the inside. You've got the two inside breaking routes, the shin routes, whatever you want to call them. And, you know, he reads the safety well and finds the underneath guy. And he he ran this concept twice in this game, if I'm not mistaken, pretty successfully. So this is a guy that still put some good things on tape. 
And I and I'm wondering, you know, is are are we going to fall into the Ryan Fitzpatrick trap with this game, where Daniel Jones can actually really hurt the Eagles, or if he does hurt the Eagles, what do you think that looks like? Is it mostly on maybe getting Saquon Barkley vertical in the passing game, which they've really struggled to do, and I and I hate that they can't figure that out. Like, is there is there a certain concepts that you really like against the Eagles? Like, I, I'm finding it hard to believe that Jones is going to have a lot of success despite the lack of trust that I have in the Schwartz defense right now. And the Barkley issue is a fascinating one because I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago where I tried to look at his usage as opposed to some other what we know, what we call sort of receiving running backs. Mm -hmm. Like you can find his sort of target heat map and compare it to a James White and a Christian McCaffrey and an Alvin Kamara. No, it it actually isn't that bad, believe it or not. Really? This year they've started to... And and, and part of it is those guys see a lot of targets near the line of scrimmage as well. I mean, the one guy that probably gets used downfield the most out of them is James White because Mm. Patriots love him on that wheel route along the right sideline out of the backfield. We saw it a couple of times on Sunday night. We saw it. He had a big play against Buffalo, you know, a couple weeks back on that. And so, but they're, they're trying to get him involved it's just their offensive line needs help yeah and you gotta keep you gotta keep Barkley on the field anyway and while his pass protection has been up and down there have been times when he's actually been pretty good at it like you look at I forget what game it was but there was a game a couple weeks ago where you know he IDs a blitzer that's coming late brings himself across the formation to chip on the blitzer at the last second to give Jones some more time like he's put it in the effort in pass protection. And so they got to sort of keep him near the line of scrimmage. A lot of times he's chipping and releasing late. And so because of the problems up front, they've got to rely on more as a blocker. I, I think with Ingram out, you know, they would be smarter to rely on their tight ends to do some stuff like this. Like we see a lot of teams, San Francisco does it where they'll put him and put the quarterback in the shotgun and have the tight end lined as a back and basically say, look, we can't leave you isolated on a, le- on a defensive end, but if we have you here, you can stop somebody who's got a free rush at the quarterback and let Barkley do some more stuff in the vertical passing game. Their offense is tough to figure out. Like They could be doing more. It could be better, but schematically and conceptually, it's just not there, and part of it has to do with, like I said, the woes up front. Yeah, and the woes up front are really, really bad, and, and combined with, with a couple of things, at least to some disastrous results at times, just to throw out some PFF stats out there. He is out of quarterbacks that have spent more than 50% of their team's dropbacks as their quarterback. So the ingrained starters, he is the top pressured quarterback in the NFL right now at 43%. Those are harsh conditions for a rookie quarterback. And then you have Daniel Jones, by the way, time to throw is at 2.73 average. That is third slowest of the ingrained starters. So that's that's like a perfect storm of, of, of bad quarterback play. And also, of course, with the fumbles. And it kind of highlights those issues right there. If you're holding on to it too long, you're getting pressured literally all of the time, almost on half of your snaps, yeah, you're probably going to have some fumbles. So that might be something that he can clean up next year, but it's something that the Eagles need to exploit. Uh, Mark, great talk with you as always. Anything else you want to you throw out there before we hit the old uh, dusty trail, whether it be Wentz, Jones, our marriages being fine, what you're reading, what, whatever the case may be, man, sound off. Uh, our marriages are completely fine. Correct. I have to reiterate that because I know my parents. <laughs> my parents listen to this show, so I have to put that out there. Mom, Dad, the marriages, they are indeed fine. <laughs> As for Jones, the pressure numbers, part of that is him too. I, right. mean, I oh, think yeah. it's important to remember that it's not all offensive line. Part of that is him because, like I said, he will hold the ball too long. 
partly because of route concepts, partly because he's not trusting what he's seeing, partly because he's the guy we all thought he was going to be anyway. Right. And so he does need to figure that out. This is a game that should set up well for Philadelphia because we know the strength of their defense is the defensive front and getting pressure. We've seen that time and time again. It sets up well for them to have a defensive get right game. So maybe they can put that in. Who knows? Gentle listeners, we love you. I think I think a big thing for me with how predictable the Giants offense is even for an idiot like me and how dependent on the first read that Daniel Jones is you can force him to hold on to the ball and allow pressure to get there if you're prepped up right and your defense is schemed up right so that's the challenge for Jim Schwartz getting Jones to hold on to the ball for an extra tick. Let that rush get there. Don't have so many communication breakdowns in the uh, in the secondary, and don't get mossed six times right. in a game. I mean, that's by Devonte Parker. That's, I mean, that's this, a big factor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, well, I mean, you want to cover eighty six. He loves. This is an example of when a quarterback comes into the league and he gets second and third team reps because he's got an ingrained starter. Yeah. So he builds chemistry with a guy that's getting second and third team reps as well. He loves throwing to Darius Slate. Yeah. He will look for him. When everything goes haywire, quarterbacks have a guy they will look for. Brady looks for Edelman. Wentz looks for, I guess, Alshon Jeffrey, you could say right now. He's going to try to find 86. Take 86 away, force him to go to a different read. You're probably going to find a way to get the ball on the ground out of his hands. Yeah. And Darius Slayton, by the way, has big time speed. And yes. one of the one of the corners in Philadelphia literally cannot run with anybody. The only person that Jalen Mills has successfully run with this year is the 37-year-old Ben Watson. That is the list. That is it. That's it. So That's watch the list, kids. Watch out for Darius Slayton deep. Yeah. All right, Mark, let's get out of here. Thank you as always, gentle listener, for for joining us in a in a fun little romp down memory lane of the Eagles' terrifying loss and uh, the preview here of Daniel Jones. Uh, remember, rate, review, subscribe, give us five stars, leave a funny review if it's uh, if, it, if it tickles our fancy, we'll read it on the show here. Subscribe to Pat's Pulpit. Listen to Mark's work, because Mark is a smart dude. You're going to learn more about the game, even though he's a dirty, dirty Patriots fan. Disgusting. And that's it. That's all we have for you. Let's end the show. G and